0: Have you ever gotten your message lost in translation? Launched a well thought out content on social media only to get lost in the noise? Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms podcast. We are here to help you with practical tools to find your voice, craft shareable content, stand out in the marketplace, expand your tribe, and convert followers into ambassadors or customers. I'm Torrent, your host. A message master that's helped leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses ignite their message with lasting impact. Each week, we will go behind the scenes to share real and deep conversations with the most prominent message masters on how they took an idea and crafted content that have trended to the stratosphere, boosted the bottom line, and improved the world around them. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms podcast, and I'm really excited to have uh, Myrtle Jones, who is a PhD candidate, researcher, and author on issues of race, class, with a focus on urban relations. And not only that, she's co-founder and managing editor of Third Stone, which is a publication devoted to Afrofuturism and Black Fantastic. And why do I have her on? Well, we've worked together for clients on helping engage in dialogue and be respectful on on Blacks and African-American. And in light of the Black Lives Matters incidents, I really wanted to bring her on to dialogue and how can we be better at creating the dialogue of unifying and coming together and creating an America and a world that really has a place for both and you don't feel like you have this systematic racism. And so that's why I brought on Myrtle, who is an expert and has really taught me a lot about how to be a better citizen, and dialogue with the African-American community.
1: So welcome, Myrtle. How are you? I'm fine, Torn. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Thanks for having me tonight. I'm really excited to be one of your esteemed people. You've had so many great people. I'm glad that to be tapped, and I hope I can provide some insights to your audience. Yes. And
0: I just wanted to dwell in because what I really liked about a conversation we had earlier in preparation for this podcast was really about there's black communities, not monolithic. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest problems we have today is in the media and places, at least from my impression as a white person, is that you're just seeing this one block of black. And I thought it was so interesting how you enlightened me. And I, I would love for you to enlighten the listeners on this topic.
1: Well, there is no Black community. There are multiple Black communities. And one of the challenges is, is even though there are multiple Black communities, the consistent thing that all of them encounter is systemic racism. But the lens by which everyone sees that is different and the ways in which everyone experiences is is different. So it's complex because we can talk about, I can throw out some scholars, if anybody wants to read Kimberly Crenshaw's work, but there are people who talk about this idea of, you know, intersectionality. We're comprised of so many things, and so sadly, because of systemic racism, a lot of times people don't want to give Black people the same nuance that they give to other groups of people in terms of, the nuances is of difference, whether they're regional, whether they are class differences. You know, somebody who's Black who grew up on the Gold Coast of Chicago does not have the same experience as somebody who's Black who lived in Inglewood. And even though people have said, well, there are no Black people who live on the Gold Coast of Chicago. Actually, it's not true. I know people who live there. So their experiences are very different. And the lenses through which they see things are different. But The challenge is they're both going to experience the same type of systemic racism, even though they're different. So there are multiple communities of Black people, but sadly, all of them experience the same disenfranchisement, and the ways in which it's viewed and enacted is very different. So when people try to put all Black people into one box, it gets to be challenging. How is that challenge? Can you give me like an example? Because what I really like
0: what you're saying is that blacks in Chicago, as exposed to South Carolina, which we've worked together on, and New York, it's all different with different experiences, but you're saying have the same experience of systematic racism. Could you elaborate a little bit? Could you give like an example to bring some depth and understanding to that?
1: Okay. I am a black girl from the South side of Chicago. My parents are Southern migrants. My dad was from Louisiana. My mother, they were from Mississippi. and They migrated to Arkansas. So in my home, I'll, and I now live in New York City. So all of those experiences impact me as a black person, impact me as a, as a woman. And then I'm not even talking about class. You know, my parents were working class, but I went to private school my whole life. You know, we had dance lessons. My mother had piano lessons. So that grounds me in a different way. Although we experienced systemic racism, when I was confronted in high school, Marshall Fields, they're no longer around. I went to the store and I was followed around and I was so irate that I went to the store manager I insisted that they apologize to me. I wanted it in writing. I wanted it from the head of the store. I wasn't going to leave. I was going to write everybody in the newspaper, all this other stuff. I got my apology in writing. Wow. I still have it. So, do you think that's because your parents brought you up with being able to
0: defend yourself? Because a lot of times you have the impression that maybe other communities of Blacks that are experiencing that kind of racism would not do or stand
1: up like you did. Do you think that's true? It's also because I went to private school. Like, I could actually put something behind that. At the time, I had contacts. I knew how to write a letter to the editor. I could have called on media people. (laughs) You know, I knew people. I had worked in high school journalism. I went to the University of Chicago Laboratory School. I had also worked in retail, so I understood how retail work. So my experiences as a black girl from the South side of Chicago was different. And the thing about it is, is even though I experienced that systemic racism, the ways in which some other person may not have, have, may have experienced that shouldn't be judged. If another young black person had that experience and it scarred them for life and they never want to go to a store again, and they were shocked or whatever, they shouldn't be judged. And what happens is, is, We blame the different Black communities and not the systemic racism that everybody experiences. So people are focused on all the nuances that exist in the community. But if we take a step back, the bigger issue is, regardless of what community you're part of, no one should have to experience that. So where do you think this systemic
0: racism comes from? Is it centuries of old? Is it uh, Well, in your in your experience of having systemic racism, and I remember when we went to school together with our other classmate, and you guys were talking about racism, I was really surprised. Like because I haven't experienced it, so it's kind of how do you see that? Where do you think it's coming from? Is it from you see that systematic racism in other countries?
1: This is where I'm going to wear my academic hat. In this country, it started with the whole idea of the denial of humanity of black people, not just black people. I mean, if you read a a gentleman named Ibrahim Kendi's work, it's called Stamp from the Beginning. And there's a whole series of things you can read, but basically the economic system of slavery required the dehumanization of groups of people. And a bunch of people were dehumanized. We're not the first, you know, the whole idea of dehumanization goes back to the Greeks. It's not something new The challenge is in the United States and in the Caribbean and a lot of places where you had the transatlantic slavery, you could dehumanize people and then tie that to a visual marker. Because it's one thing for us to, the Irish have been dehumanized and the Germans have been dehumanized and the Scots have been dehumanized. But if everybody looks sort of the same, you don't have to put a stamp on that group because at some point you can aspire and get out of that. But when you dehumanize an entire group of people based on the hue of their skin, now, even when people are not, quote unquote, part of the dehumanization, they're marked for life. Mm. It's worse than a caste system. And even when there were free blacks, I mean, 12 Years a Slave is a great example of here's a guy who's a free black, but because he looks black, it's very easy for him to now be brought into slavery, even though he's free. So the challenge is, is that we talk about that disenfranchisement, but in the United States, you have over 400 years by which the country has benefited from that. Not just with slavery, with chain gangs, with Uh, incarceration. Chain gangs was when people would be incarcerated for the slightest offense and they worked they built roads, they built bridges. All of that is free labor. Even the current incarceration system, when prisoners are in jail, they work for a dollar an hour. So it's more free labor. So you're talking a about modern sense of slavery. Right. And I'm saying from the time slavery started in this country, there has been some form of dehumanization or attempt at dehumanization of black people that benefited the society at large, but not the people who are dehumanized. So for instance, you know, America has all these great roads and we have this wonderful infrastructure and we have all this other stuff. Well, who built that? You know, America was this huge superpower and not just America. I mean, slavery was in Jamaica even beforehand. You know, we usually focus on the United States, but the transatlantic slave trade, you know, it came to the the shores of the United States in 1619. It was in the Caribbean islands a hundred years before then.
0: You
1: know, people don't talk about a hundred years before that in the 1500s. So by the time it got to the United States, it was, you know, almost perfected. So people say, oh, well, you can get over it. Well, you can't get over it when it built an economic situation. And I can speak personally. My grandparents, who were born, both born in the early 1900s, they were denied access to housing. You know, you couldn't buy a house in certain neighborhoods. And there are tons of studies and books that talk about well, those neighborhoods didn't appreciate at the same value. So if you were black and you could only buy in poor performing neighborhoods, that means that generational wealth was halted because the other people bought in places where, you know, when you inherited the house, you got great benefits. Well, you were denied access to that. And personally my grandparents got a house built from scratch you know Mm -hmm. bought the land built the house well the only person they could get by the city was a white builder who built them a horrible house and they could not sue they basically had to rebuild the house but they could not sue there was no court that they could take the the builder to and this was in the 1960s so in the 1960s in Arkansas it was no use in trying to bring a court case because they were not going to win. So now you can only buy in a certain neighborhood. The house you're built is totally shoddy. So that's generations of wealth stagnation. So when people talk about like, oh, wow, systemic racism, it's hard because the other thing is, is it means that everybody else now has to confront their privilege, me included. You have to confront that I live in a place That is built on the dehumanization of people. And that dehumanization has meant that there are all these privileges that I've enjoyed at the hands of generations of other people. And even as a Black person, when I look at my experience, I've been to over 35 countries, and I look at just certain things I'm used to. I expect to have electricity, I have that expectation. I have the expectation that my electricity is supposed to work at all times. Well, in Nigeria, that's not an expectation you have, unless you live on Banana Island. You know, unless you live in certain places, and and, and that's not an expectation you have. They have brownouts for a whole host of other reasons. But my expectation of having that, I have to chalk up to the fact of the dehumanization of people led to the United States having an infrastructure and all these things. So now, when I go to other places, I have this expectation of how things should go. For instance, I lived in Egypt in the 1990s. And when I lived and worked in Egypt at the time, Americans got paid significantly more than Egyptians. Right. And when I found this out, I was in a furor. And then my boss explained to me, OK, an Egyptian your age wouldn't be living alone. She'd be living with her parents. So she wouldn't have any rent to pay. Because that's just their culture. She would still be living at home with her parents until she got married. Also, as a foreigner, I was going to pay double and triple for everything. I'm going to pay more for a taxi. I'm going to pay more for stuff. So that's the other, which I was actually fine with. And the other piece of that is, too, there are certain things as an American that I'm used to. Those are just things that I have become accustomed to. So they realized that okay, if I was going to have someone, they would have to pay us more. Now, eventually, we did lobby and say, okay, Egyptians need to be paid a fair wage because you can't assume that all women want to stay at home. If there were some things that happen, but the point that I'm making is, this idea of privilege is something that a lot of people don't want to confront because now you have to deal with the fact of. Everything I got, I didn't get on merit. I got because there was a whole group of people who were running the race and they had their legs tied and their hands tied and their mouths bound. And so, yeah, I beat them. And so it's generations of that. So it becomes one of these things of how do we now deal with that? And there are people who are working this out. I love Nicole hannah Jones's work. If somebody wants to read her, she writes about reparations and the the way moving forward. And I guess the challenge is to first start by looking at the man in the mirror and saying, wait a minute, in which ways have I benefited that I didn't really even know I benefited? You know, if you are a white person in this country, even if you're poor and living in Appalachia and they're like, oh, and I'm, I'm you know, God, God bless them because poverty is real. But the challenge of it is, is you can leave Appalachia and move to New York, and people will have assumptions about who you are, and you can fake it till you make it. But you can't fake it in a way because it's almost like a
0: markation of because of the color of your skin, there's a systematic racism. And it's kind of like what Condoleezza Rice was saying. It's, it's the birth defect of the U.S.
1: Correct. For instance, I am assumed to be disenfranchised until proven otherwise. But do you think, like the way with affirmative action and and
0: some of the of some of the things that have been moving forward and creating a better voice than maybe was in the '60s, that that's really ushered in kind of this not accepting discrimination anymore, and the fact that you have the Black Lives Matter
1: standing up? What do you think about that? You now, when you say affirmative action and not accepting, do you mean the backlash against affirmative action, or do you mean the the inroads did affirmative action the way it has been helping with
0: ensuring that african americans are getting their their place in various arenas making sure that there's a a representation has that helped or do you think it's worsened or do you think some do you think we're better off now than we were in the 60s i think that's what i want to ask i wasn't around in the 60s so it's hard for me to say but just from the stories you told me about your grandparents what? they can't sue they can't get a house that's built like a white person's house. You know, they didn't have equality and they couldn't make those complaints. Do you believe from looking back in history and with all the research you've done, do you think we're moving forward or do you think we're moving backwards? Depends
1: on who the we is. Right. I think that it's like, okay, which which we are we talking about? Because if you're, a- if you're talking about a middle class black person in New York or Chicago, no. 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 Because in the 60s and the 70s, that person could own a house. Hmm. But now, because you of where it's not at $3 million, No, you can't. Yeah, it's gone up a lot. Yeah. I used to live in Harlem, so I know. Right? And in Chicago, sadly, because of a lot of the violence, when you're looking at the difference between a, a home in Lincoln Park or a home in Inglewood, you're talking about not a few thousand dollars difference. You're talking about double, triple, quadruple the price. You're talking about a house in Inglewood that might be a hundred thousand dollars and Lincoln Park, it's $700,000. Same house. I mean, there was a young woman who actually did a study where she looked at one house and one house on the other end and you saw the differences of the, the price. So When you talk about the we, who is the we? And then you also have the complexities of, in the 60s, you know, the changes with the civil rights also brought about a change to immigration. People don't understand, you know, when people talk about the the people who immigrated to this country and the, the, the wonderful people who came, well, they came as a result of the fight of many Black people and liberals who fought for changes to immigration during the civil rights movement. The bringing in of other people was a civil rights initiative. It was a civil rights movement that brought people in. So if you talk to somebody who may have immigrated from, say, India in the 70s, and you look at multi-generational, I think the Times are the story. Yes, they've done really well. And I'm sure there's somebody who could come. That's one group. There are some people who haven't. But the challenge is, is who is the we we're talking about? If you're talking about the person whose parents were part of the great Northern migration, and they moved to Chicago and, and, and New York and all these different places. Are they better off today? No, they're not. But like with some white people, it's like, I would just look at my family.
0: My family's an immigrant family. And my father, and if you ask the immigrants from Norway, they would say they were better off in the 70s than they are today. Right.
1: Okay. And a lot of it might be perspective because. The challenge is is that many black people, I shouldn't say many, my experience has been that some black people, especially in New York, where I do my research, their worst is akin to being dire, and that you're talking about people who are who have experienced homelessness. I've never met so many working class people who have at some point have been homeless. Right. Like, or, and if they're not homeless, they're living multiple generations in housing. So you have a family that occupies a bedroom. Right. So you'll like have a three bedroom and a family will occupy a bedroom. You know, a husband, a wife. I and just and think kids.
0: there's others. Like, so I remember when you and I were talking about Harlem, like there is like this class of blacks that that have a lot of the things and have the amenities and have the nice houses. There is that class too, correct?
1: Yes, there's that class too, but that class always had them, you know? So, and when I'm talking about, you know, the, the question of like, are people better off the the middle-class people who would have been able to become that class mm-hmm. now that's like hitting the lottery,
0: so if we look at economics, because I think that's, you know, I think everyone has different experiences with that. But do you think like if you think of dialoguing and, and working, you're talking about a, a systemic, like, for instance, with Malcolm Gladwood's book where he talks about Sandra Bland and the whole police thing and, and the sense of being discriminated. Is there something we can do through dialoguing and moving this forward? And, and I think that's where I liked what you're talking about, the understanding of all these different communities being different. Like, it's not just one monolithic black population.
1: Well, the thing is, is, and although it's radical, is going back to the whole thing of checking your privilege and then being willing to give something up. That's the ugly part of this that people don't really want to confront. Because if I want to say, wait a minute, the stuff that I got, I got unfairly. Now, the challenge is, is I didn't know I got it unfairly. You know, some people are like, look, I didn't know anything about this. I met people who, like, I didn't even know this stuff existed. Like, oh, my God, Myrtle, you've never talked about the things you've experienced. You know, you never heard the Marshall Field story before. Like, oh, my God. I'm like, look, that's just life. Life is a Black girl in this country or a Black woman in this country. But so how do we how do we deal with that? Because I think the kind of thing, what I've I've learned a lot from you, like, for instance,
0: there's African Americans, there's Black ethnics, and Black ethnics are... Immigrants, as I understand it correctly from last time we spoke, are people like maybe from Nigeria that came over that didn't really experience being a slave through generations, right? Well, it's so, not just
1: being a slave. So I want to correct you. So first of all, like even with terminology, so for instance, it's not being a slave, it's being enslaved. And although that seems like a really slight uh you know nuance, because slavery tries to put an identity on someone that no one deserves to to say oh you're a slave is another dehumanizing way of referring to a person you know that's why I, I love you and I love this podcast because we can have these kind of conversations the best way to refer to somebody who comes from that history is to call them enslaved because enslaved looks at A situation that was put upon a person, but it still maintains your humanity. So the one thing we've done wrong with language is we have dehumanized the situation
0: and possibly where we can be more healing is to understand the nuances of words. So use the, like, for example, using the word enslaved.
1: Right. That's very
0: interesting. Okay.
1: And it's a subtle difference, but it's to to me, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful difference. You know when you look at you know the enslaved because you know the thing that having gone to Ghana and actually you know toured the slave castles and been there, people lose sight of enslavement had a negative impact on everyone involved. It was basically the first. It was a major brain drain of the continent. In order to survive that journey, you had to be pretty strong. You know you're talking about months being sequestered and unfed and beat before the ships, you know, the ship didn't go out right away. The ships came back like every few months. So then the sh- journey alone. So you took the best and the brightest and the strong people, and then you took them away. So. I you really know, that,
0: right. It was a brain drain of the whole continent.
1: Right. It was a, it was a drain of the young, the vibe, you know, so that had an impact there as well. So this enslavement you know had this impact on everybody i mean people on the continent fought back there were warriors who were like wait once they realized but then they were outbeat with guns and technology but kind of getting back to the point of like looking at okay the impact the impact of enslavement one of the things is is this idea of dehumanization so kind of to tie this in the reason why everyone Probably was so moved or saddened and, and just stricken with grief over seeing what happened to Mr. George Floyd because it was the visual dehumanization. This man, wow. he was a human being. So, regardless of what community you're part of, everybody who was a human could see another human being in pain and calling out to their mother. Uh, their dead mother you know so everybody rallied and the reason why I think so many people from so many different communities are now coming together over that because that was a blatant lack of humanity but the challenge something we don't really
0: want to accept and then it's kind of the invisible dehumanization that we don't even realize when we're using words to talk. Right. I think that's for me where I've, I try to be very respectful of the various race relations and having lived in Harlem in almost like four years and that you were the one that challenged me. Do you remember that? You were saying, yeah. hey, live in Harlem and be a minority in this country. And I learned so much about being in that community and being a minority. And then yet I felt I was treated with such respect in, in Harlem and I was really honored that I was treated that way. But it's kind of like, how do we speak to one another? Because it's almost like now you're afraid of being offended. And then by being afraid of offended, you go into this cycle of fear of you don't even want to talk. And then it maybe becomes a misinterpretation of why you're withdrawing. Like, so how do we engage the conversation after this with Floyd? How do we talk? And how do we start the dialogue and the dialogue is already happening, but how can each one of us that's listening to this and how can we be mindful and respectful and, and be a force for change
1: in this? We have to learn to be okay with the discomfort. Elaborate on that. When I was in high school, I'm not going to say his name. I had a friend who was white. We we got to be really close. We were in journalism. Shout out U high lab school. And I'm there late one night and he asked me, why do Black people stand on corners and wear colored plastic bags on their head? Provide context, during that time, jerry curls were the waves in certain communities. This was the 80s. So people wore jerry curls. And in the hood, you would see people who wore plastic bags to match their outfits to keep their jerry curls moist. And he had never seen anybody in the school doing that. But he wanted to know, why did Black people do that? I was furious with him. I, was, I just went off with him, went off on him like, how dare you ask me a question like that? This is offensive, blah, blah, blah. And I went home and, you know, we had dinner. We had formal dinner at the table every night. We had our dinner we we're sitting there. And I go tell my parents, who I just know my mother, you know, Mississippi, Arkansas is going to be like, yeah, I'm glad you gave it to him. I was like, can you believe he asked me that? And my mother was like, well, did you answer that young man's question? I was like, what? That's offensive. And I went off on him and she said, well, you're going to go back there and apologize to him. I said, apologize. He's the wrong one. She said that poor young man. And she kept saying that poor young man. I said, what do you mean that poor young man? I'm the one that's offended. She said, Myrtle. You are the closest Black person he knows. And he asked you a question because he really wants to know and you went off on him. He doesn't know why you went off on him. You didn't explain why you felt that was offensive. You didn't explain the nuances. So she said, now he's never going to ask a black person anything else again, but he's going to go around thinking all these little thoughts in his head. And they're just going to churn and churn and churn. And it's going to be even worse. She said, and he was reaching out to you. You offered him no help. You bit the man's head off. You're going to go back there and apologize to him and answer his question and explain to him why you got so upset. And I was looking at her like, uh, excuse me, I want another parent here. You're supposed to be on my side. And she helped me to understand. And so I learned that that kind of discomfort is where the growth happens. So I went back to him and said, look, at the time, you know, Roseanne Barr was on. I said, do I ask you about Roseanne Barr and the stuff they do? He was, I said, because I know those are your, that's not your tribe. Those aren't your people. Well, the guy on the corner with the colored bag, that ain't my tribe either. So I don't know why he, why he feel like that's cute to match his clothes with the colored bag. I said, but in the same token, you know, so I can't speak for all black people. I said, nobody in this school does that. I said, so I can't tell you that you've never seen me do it or anybody I know. I said, I have family members who had a jerry curl, nothing wrong with a jerry curl, shout out to the S curls and all that other stuff, but none of them wore the in public, a colored bag matching their clothes. And so what people don't want to do is have those uncomfortable conversations and be okay with the discomfort and get mad sometimes and say, but explain why am I mad? Why? And so now we can move toward a path path of of, of healing. But if we all sit back, there is a, um, a sociologist named Elijah Anderson and I love his work. He has one book called Cosmopolitan Canopies. And he does a study. And part of that study is, is he, does, he looks at these spaces in Philadelphia and he says they're cosmopolitan canopies because people come with all their different ideas or whatever. But in this space, they kind of practice a folk, folk ethnography. And that people ask these questions and they learn about the other group and then they go back to their communities. But in those moments, even if it's just at a lunch counter, You are now, some of the myths about who we are get to fade or be affirmed, but it's a space where you have all these different people. So he says like Reading Market is one of them. So you get these spaces where people from all over come and they have this dialogue and it's, you know, you're eating over food. So it's it's the, the level of discomfort isn't as high. And I think that's the challenge is that now people can go and be in their groups and not have this dialogue. And when you start having the dialogue is when now we can reach a place of being like, Oh, I didn't know that. You know, when you were talking briefly about your family, I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. So now in that level of discomfort, we can now get to a place where we're like, Oh, okay. I'm learning some things, but the challenge is, is nobody wants to be uncomfortable the legacy of this country now is there's no way we can deal with this and not have discomfort. That's the, that's the, that's the unfortunate reality. We have 400 years of people wanting to be comfortable at the risk of other groups of people. The only thing we have left to get to healing is to be uncomfortable. Wow. And And how do we train
0: ourselves to be uncomfortable? And how do we create the space that it's okay to be uncomfortable? Because sometimes you get really worried about that you're offending so much that you break ties that can't be. And it's almost like having the safety net of being uncomfortable.
1: It's, we have to now move toward a society, to me, that's grounded in what I call speaking the truth in love. If you know somebody is coming, one of the things like with the gentleman when I was in high school, before my mother last so my mother said, "Is this guy your friend?" And I said, "Yes." "Has he done anything mean to you before?" "No." "Has he done anything hurtful?" "No." He asked you this question. So my mother helped me to see that this person was coming from a place of love. There are people, and that's of all races, who are just hateful people. But somebody coming from a point of hate, usually you can tell. You can tell somebody who's being hateful So the challenge is for us to look at, okay, is this person asking me a question to be nasty? Because there's some people who might be asking, oh, well, you know, where did you grow up? Or, you know, oh, you're from the south side of Chicago. The thing that really gets me is what I call the high school question. Because when you're from Chicago, people can tell your class by where you went to high school. So So they'll say, oh, you grew up on the south side of Chicago. Where did you go to school? And they're trying to like, oh, and then I say, oh, I went to the University of Chicago Laboratory School. And then they're like, oh, okay, And I have literally had people black and white be like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now my class position has changed. And I'm like, no, I'm still that black girl from the south side of Chicago, like 79th Street all day long. But now I'm 79th Street with the lab school. And so it's about really trying to come from a place of love at all times. And I don't think you have these conversations. It's hard to have with total strangers. I tell people start with like your core group and then branch out from there. You know, I have a white friend of mine and she is my sister and we've had these conversations. And the thing that I love about her, her name is Donna everybody in her family. And, you know, she's honest, like, look, I got some races in my family. And I was like, I got some in mine too. I mean, so we can have these conversations, but a really telling moment of how wonderful she is, is I invited her to go to church with me and she went to church and I go to a black church. Um, At the time I went to Allen cathedral in Queens, the church holds like three to 5,000 people. I think you took me there too. Right. Exactly. I I was like the only white white person. Right. Exactly. I take everybody there. Everybody goes to Allen. And I was like, wow, that's what I really
0: felt. Like I lived in Harlem because of you. And then I went to the church with you and being the only white person in a church of 3000 people, I totally for the first time realized what it meant to be a minority. Right. Yeah. It really, it really stuck to me.
1: Right. And Donna verbalized it. She later told me, she said, you know, we were talking and she said, I was like, whoa. And Donna grew up in Washington Heights. So she grew up in this multicultural place. So it wasn't that she didn't, she grew up in a building that was very diverse, but it was like, she was like, yo, it was one other white guy. She was like, I count it. Like it was 3000 people in three by white people, and I was number three. And the other white guy, I was like, Oh, yeah, he a member. She said, I can tell, like, he's a member. So she said, He was like a front. And so she said, She was kind of shocked. And then she said, But everybody was so loving and they were so kind. Yeah. And then she said, You know what? Then she thought, Wait a minute. This is Myrtle's life every day. Because she started replaying our corporate life. And she was like, Wait a minute. Wherever we go, Myrtle's like the only and one of a few. And she said, And these people aren't this friendly. And you're in a room where not everybody's so nice. She said, I can't imagine what your life must be like. Because you're in rooms where nobody's so loving. And this is your experience. She said, because everybody in this room were loving and kind. She said, but it was, she said, it took a minute. Because she said, you know, you were like, whoa, whoa. And so that kind of uncomfortable conversation is what brings us closer. Even when this whole thing p- broke out, like she called and she was just like, you know, she said, I don't want to be one of them people like, oh, let me call all my black friends. <laughs> and, and you know, because it became even more taxing because I have some friends, like a white friend of mine reached out because she reached out to another black friend who bit her head off because during times like this, everybody's different. Some people are like, look, I don't want you calling me try to assuage your white guilt and want me to hold your hand and, and give you the kumbaya speech. When I'm over here hurting, because the challenge that we have now is like I was saying, I've been in antagonistic spaces, you get to a point where you just get used to certain things, sadly. Because if you don't, you won't be able to cope. You'll have a nervous breakdown. But seeing what happened to Mr. Floyd on that TV, I haven't even watched the whole thing because I can't. Like I can't watch Elijah McClain. Like I hear it and I just like cry because Every experience you have, you now have to confront. All the stuff that you've been like, oh, you're like, damn, you know, like, oh my, because now you have to take a minute. And so everybody had to deal with that minute differently. For some people, it was just like sadness. For some people, you know, my mother was just crying and crying because it's not just about him. It's about all of the situations you've experienced that you know could have led you there. You know, you're thinking that could be me because you've had little experiences along the way. That could have been you. I've been stopped by the police, me. I'm the most unassuming black person you know. And when I first got my car, I was stopped by the police near my house. The doorman had to stick up for me. I have notes from my, I mean, I've been doing ethnographic field work in Harlem with the Black Elite for about 10 years now. There's a dentist who owns a brownstone, and there have been times when the police were rolling up on him on his own building because he had on jeans and looked casual, and he the police was rolling up on him. And they saw the sign that said doctor's office in front of his house. But he was like, "Yo!" they were like, yeah, doc, we saw what was about to go down. So we were like, you know, let's let them know you're the doctor who lives in the brownstone. And this ain't that long ago. You know, this is not that long ago. So that moment for a lot of people of color was a moment of like reckoning because it brought all the stuff you have been bearing out. But kind of getting back to the point I'm making. So then it becomes even more taxing now when some of your white friends are like, oh my God, let's talk about it. You're like, look, I'm sitting over here dealing with my own trauma right now. Because I'm an academic, because of some other stuff. Hey, I've been in therapy. I think every person of color needs to find somebody great. I could actually talk to my friends and say, look, you know, I'm good. I thank them for checking on me and say, yeah, you know, this is a moment that shakes up. Because, and it's not just this moment, now that's brought out the Elijah McClain's, Brianna Taylor, I mean, we got Sandra Bland, I mean, person after person, so we're like, how many of these people can we have? Because you're talking about, I'm from Chicago, where Emmett 2 happened, and people don't understand the psychology of what that happens. I went down South every summer, up until I was 11. I have only been hit by my grandmother one time. My grandmother slapped me in the mouth and cried afterwards because a white woman asked me about school and my grandmother thought I was too flippant with her. So she slapped me in front of the woman because my grandmother grew up in a time where a young black girl who spoke to a white woman could have gotten killed. So she wanted the woman to know that she was dealing with me. Wow. And that was a reaction. And she cried and cried and cried and told me how sorry she was because her instinct. And as I got older, I realized that was her moment of love because she was doing that to keep me safe. Even though, I mean, thank God, I I don't think it was a time when that could have happened, but you know, my grandmother knows a time when it could have. And I didn't even think I was being rude to the woman. I mean, the, the woman asked me the Chicago public schools were going on strike. And the woman asked me if I was excited because I was gonna get to spend more time with my grandparents because school wasn't started. And I looked at the woman and I was polite. I was like, oh, that doesn't apply to me because I don't go to public school. I was like, I go to private school, so we'll be in school. And so my grandmother was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she's told this woman she goes to private school, you know, <laughs> where this woman couldn't afford for her kids to go. My mother was, my grandmother was like afraid of the reckoning of what could happen. So post-traumatic stress syndrome. Correct.
0: post-traumatic PTSD. Right. And how do you react to things? And then it becomes a reaction instead of something that you're responding to.
1: Right. And so the trauma that generations of folks have dealt with, fortunately for me, I could dissect that, but that would have been even more trauma on me because here's this woman who loves me deeply and I know she loves me And has never hit me before. Let's start there. And I didn't grow up in one of these spare to ride, spoiler child households. You know, my parents weren't about that kind of physical abuse. So for me, this was a shock. Like I was in shock. And, you know, she cried because her thing was, is she knew how much that hurt me. But at that moment, she felt like I got a choice. And if this, if I get, she has to be hurt temporarily, but her life is going to be spared. So those are the kind of things that other groups of people don't have to think about or deal with. Your earlier question about Black ethnic's it becomes this is something that is specific to this enslavement of people that were in the United States. And I can't speak as much to the Caribbean, but I have friends who are from there. But it is specific to to us. And I think
0: this is so interesting, Myrtle, because that's where you really you gave me depth and understanding in the sense that we can't just put everyone in a black box. You know what I mean? Like the one race, there's black communities, right? And, right. And, and I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more just because there's not just African Americans that have been in this enslavement, but you have other blacks that have come with their communities. And how can you give us a little bit of a, def, just give us a little bit of an overview of that or just give us a little taste of that? and understand. Sure.
1: So there is a lot of scholars who write on kind of this, you know, I like the work of C.L.R. James. You can read Franz Fanon's work, The Wretched of the Earth. But one of the challenges is, is that enslavement was enacted differently in different places. You had the Dutch, you had the British, you had the Portuguese. Each group brought their own, the Spanish, each group brought their culture in the ways in which they enslaved people. And then you also had the terrain. So, for instance, you might have an island where the enslavers didn't actually really live on the island. You might only have one or two white families, and everybody else is enslaved. So, one of the things that I'm currently writing about in my research is the idea of when somebody migrates to an area, they experience different structural forces, which has an impact on their identity formation. So for wow. instance, someone who migrates to Harlem in the 1980s had a very different experience than somebody who migrated to Harlem in 2015. Or even when I was there in 2005 and 2006. Right. And that's two- completely different from what it is today. I don't even recognize Harlem. Right. So it creates a, it creates kind of this natural kind of sifting because somebody who didn't want to deal with the challenges you dealt with in 2005 was going to move after a year. They were going to be like, look, I'm not dealing with this. I'm out of here. They're, I don't like the, the the, the I think then the, the, the vegetables were still encased in plastic. You know, when you went to grocery stores and the vegetables weren't loose, they had everything packed, pre-packaged in yes. plastic. you know you couldn't touch the physical vegetables unless you went to fairway on 125th street There was like two or three stores you could go to where you could physically touch an orange like a food desert when i was right everything was encased in plastic right so that person would have been like i'm out of here whereas now you got whole foods even the hood stores don't have the vegetables encased in plastic you can touch as much (laughs) as you want to you know, at your local, you know, frontiers and, and your all your other stores. So when you talk about Nigerians, a Nigerian who migrated in the 70s had a very different experience than a Nigerian who migrated in the 80s. Yeah. And so you now look at talk about communities, just like with the black communities, racism is a, is a homogenizing experience. So regardless of what your class is, you know, when you experience systemic racism, it homogenizes you because whether or not you lived on the Gold Coast or you lived in Inglewood in Chicago, when you experience racism, it's homogenizing. And that's the challenge. It's that people...
0: dehumanizing as well.
1: It's dehumanizing, but it's also homogenizing because yeah. now me and you, even if we're from different places, we have this shared camaraderie around that. I have a friend from Kenya and I was talking about lynchings. They're like, oh my God, what's that? I'm like, you know what a lynching is? But it's not their history. Isn't, you know, that interesting, and, isn't that interesting how
0: we make an assumption and 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 by making that assumption, we number one, dehumanize, we homogenize and we lose the depth of the experience of that individual.
1: And we also now don't really deal with the real issues at hand in terms of how do we have a great and vibrant life for everybody in this country? That's the issue. How do we take that person who has dealt with the four hundred years of systemic racism and make their life better and from this day forward make the generations better? So, you know, you know, I think Asheville, they just passed a, a reparations bill. But what does that look like? What does it look like in terms of saying? look, we've had this systemic racism for this group of people. So they've been disenfranchised with horrible educational outcomes, bad housing, even when you get ahead. Because, you know, Tulsa, the whole thing with Tulsa, Oklahoma and Rosewood and the burning, which I knew about because I have relatives that were part of that community. But that's only one of them. My grandfather was run out of town in the middle of night and told he was going to, they were going to kill his family. And so he had to up and, move everything his house everything just got left behind he's one of a gazillion people everybody has a story of some relative who had to because his life was threatened by some white person nobody even talks about what does that kind of displacement do you know when so you what have do you to leave about, so when you think about
0: displacement and going back to what you talk about discomfort what do you think it's going to take and how do we create platforms of discomfort to have that discussion?
1: I'm real practical. One, it's going to take a lot of money. When you look at the state, the wealth disparity of Black Americans in this country, it is startling. It is startling. But
0: so, so if you look at it now, we've had, we've had some major experiences now with, uh, with Floyd and, and really a lot of us have come to the reckoning of the dehumanization that happened with that incident. You've had friends call you and, and how do we create the dialogue of the discomfort? How do we help people to accept discomfort so we can move forward?
1: Well, one of my things is, is, is to start with the low-hanging fruit. And start what is the low-hanging fruit? with the friends that you currently have.
0: Right.
1: You know, like with you and I, and saying, hey, how can I help? I want to listen. Whether it's somebody saying, look, here are some local organizations that could use your funds here are some local organizations that could use your voice or your platform or you to share with, because then this is somebody who you already know, who you already trust. And you can say, okay, they vetted these organizations and they say, Hey, this, these are places where you can go and support. And you're starting at a very kind of local level and saying, okay, this is where I can start. I think that's a great place. Some people who are like, look, I don't have any intimate black friends or, or, or people. I mean, that's real. They're black people who don't have any intimate white friends. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it goes both ways. If you have any type of house of worship that has been doing work, whether it's the synagogue, whether it's your church, if you're part of any spiritual practice, you know, see if there's somebody in your spiritual practice who's been doing outreach work with organizations you know, so that's a place, and if you're not part of any of those, there's the local NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. That's a great place to start because it's kind of like the experience of of being a minority when you're not used to
0: being a minority. Like I remember when I was at that church with you. How do you reach out? Because and I, maybe that's where I have to learn to accept more of the discomfort of when I go to the to the local organizations like NWACP to be discomfortable. In my offering to help right right, that's, right. That's, yes so, so it's really challenging all of us to be discomfort because in that we will help society move forward
1: right and it's, it's not just it's uncomfortable, and the thing is is not trying to challenge you, it's like welcome to our world welcome to our world yeah because as a black person, I'm uncomfortable all day every day right. <laughs> And it's usually antagonistic. Right. You know, so it's like, I, you know, I'm not trying to say I want this. I don't want it for anybody. Although, I let me what I love my life. Like, I'm happy that God made me a Black woman with all the stuff that comes with it. Like, I'm, like, happy and excited about it because the magic of the, of, of the experience for me, I wouldn't trade for anything. I do think the magic of the experience did not have to come with the discomfort. I'm not like, oh, I'm not one of these. I have to come up the rough side of the mountain. And that's why I think these conversations are great because hopefully it gets to the point where future generations won't have to have this level of, of discomfort and have to be as uncomfortable. But we got to get through this now, you know, and it's, it's nothing. And then when you think about it, The more the sooner we do it the better. Because I look at kids. If you spend a lot of time around kids, kids don't see race and kids don't see color. So they'll be like, you know, they'll refer to my white friends. Oh, the peach lady. You know your friend, the peach one? I'm like, what peach one? You know the peach one? And I'll be like, oh her, yeah, you know, she peach. And you know, kids, you know, they refer to colors as fruits and stuff like that, because they're just like that. There's no judgment to it. There's no dehumanization to it. And so we laugh and joke about it, but it also kids say stuff and they don't realize it. I once had a boss and his daughter who I love dearly. She's like in college now, probably out, but Georgia really liked me. And when I came to visit one day, she was jumping up, the colored girl is here. The colored girl is here. The colored girl is here. And her parents like lost all color from their face. They were so embarrassed and they were like, oh my God, oh my God. She's yelling, call her colored. She's calling her colored. And she's like, oh my God. And I said, yes, I am here, Georgia. And they were looking like, oh my God. Cause I'm like, this is a baby and she's loved me and she's so excited. And instead of making her feel bad, I said, oh yeah. I said, but you know, another thing you can call me is Myrtle or you can call me black. And she's like, oh, okay. I didn't even make a big deal of it. Her parents were like, Oh I'm so so sorry. I don't know where she picked that up. I don't know where she got it from. And I'm like, that's okay. But I said, the issue is you need to be mindful of who she's around or mindful of what you might be saying. It's a teachable moment. Because I'm like, she got this from one of you. I said, But you
0: like that? That's a really good question. And I think we'll probably draw to close. I could talk to you for hours about this, but how do you address? Because you have a lot of words out there and it's it's interesting, like I know that the black community refer to themselves as black, but as a white person I feel uncomfortable saying black. And yeah. then you have African American, but that doesn't really define the black ethnics. And I really like when you talked earlier about how do we address that situation.
1: Asking people what they want to be called.
0: Exactly. So Again, how yes, yeah, it's
1: just asking ask people what they want to be called. It's just like the pronouns now. You don't assume somebody wants to be known as as using binary pronouns. You I mean in academic circles, you know, we all put, you know, she, her, them, they, whatever pronouns you want to be referred to, you put on your name tag. So that then people can know this is how I want to be referred to. So when you're talking about someone's race or their identity without being mean, whether it's black person or asian person or any person, ask, you know, oh, I want to, you know, be respectful, which is the best way for me to refer to you. Do you prefer to be called African-American or Black or whatever it is? And then the person will say, some people don't even give it any thought, like, oh, okay, well, you can call me this, because I like Black, but some people like the term African-American. My father grew up when we were Afro-American, you know, African-American was a step up from all the other things that we've been called and we got to realize race is a social construction, but not without power. So even though it's made up, there's still power to this whole thing. So the labels do have meaning and they do have power. So to me, it's about asking somebody what they like to be called without judgment, you know, because you can't ask them and then be like, well, why do you want to be called that? No, no, no.
0: That's great, Myrtle. I'll, I'll rem- I think that's something for all of us listeners to remember is just to ask and be be prepared to be in discomfort maybe for a few minutes but in that discomfort you're showing respect yeah so then I just want to talk to you because I'm so excited about your publication that you're managing editor and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about it because I love this afrofuturism and the devotion to black fantastic I mean that is just like wonderful can you tell us a little bit about that
1: Yes. So Third Stone is a cultural space which is exciting because it is a space for black liberation. One of the challenges is the disenfranchisement of black people also has huge cultural implications in terms of when you're dealing with the challenges of being black sometimes it's hard to focus on creativity or spaces where you can be free and Say what you want to say without having somebody look at you like you're crazy or have it be discounted. One thing that's happening in the academic circles and creative circles is many people are now talking about how we try to write books or every, whether it's film, operas, every mode of cultural and creativity in this country has worked in some way to disenfranchise and silence certain voices. So one of the things that I'm really happy about, we recently had one of the editors who has now stepping down but done great work, Christopher Varlak, the other co-founder, Dr. Saritha Williams. We all came together. You can send things if you want to be considered for publication, but it's multimodal. So it's everything from interviews to poems to fiction. We have video. We have music. But it is devoted to this concept of Afrofuturism. This idea of, and it's being defined, you know, there are a bunch of different definitions of what Afrofuturism is. So, what's um, your definition? The definition
0: so of Third Stone.
1: Just like we talk about there are many communities of Blackness, we want the many communities of Afrofuturism to feel as though they fit within Third Stone. Mm. Because Afrofuturism is this idea of a reimagination of past, present, and future. So that's very encompassing when you look at that from a Black perspective. So, you know, some people argue that there is an African futurism that is based on the continent. So those are people who are either in the United States, but originally from the continent of Africa, or they're in Africa. And so they believe that, you know, there's an African futurism. Then, you know, Afrofuturism, some people argue that Black Panther is Afrofuturistic in terms of it's this reimagining of Black or African place. But, you know, what we're doing with Third Stone is to say, look, we want to be expansive in our term and not get into, well, this is Afrofuturism and this isn't. Because there are not enough platforms for people to display and show their work. And also, as a place for people to read the work. And we also get into, which is another conversation, the politics of distribution. Because Third Stone is a free publication. So anybody anywhere in the world who has the URL can go get it and download it. So it's on a yes what we'll do is we will put that in the show notes
0: and then I'd love to have you list some of the authors that you've listed through the um through the uh talk that we could put them down there as as reference for people to read absolutely so I want to thank you for your time and then I just have a last question or what is a hack that you use cuz you're a communicator and you've always been very like into the IT is there a particular hack that you would recommend someone to use that makes your life easier? I
1: use a pen that is no longer made, so I buy them on eBay, but the pen, and I have bunches of the paper, but the pen allows me to interview and record the interviews into the cloud, and I can tap on a word, and it replays that part of the, of the interview. Oh my gosh, what's it called? I don't want to support this company because they, they no longer make the pen, but um, Maybe they will. <laughs> uh, it's live scribe. I like, have several versions. I don't like the new ones. I like the old ones. I know um, they have an echo. They have a sky wifi. You can go to eBay. I, have, I probably have a lot of them because I have like backups. So I actually have <laughs> backups of the pen <laughs> and I have backups of the paper. But um, I love it because it really saves on transcription. So I can, because when I write the notes, I can write them and then it records what I'm saying at the same time. So I can just touch a word in the page and it goes right back to it. So I love that.
0: Well, Ms. Myrtle-Jones, this has been amazing as usual. You've really expanded my mind throughout the years on what it means to be respectful and honorable on having... discussions we've had many uncomfortable discussions but it's really helped me grow and um, I hope this will help our listeners grow and all of us to be mindful to be in discomfort so we can create a better future
1: thank you and this has been a very comfortable conversation it has for both of us Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but no I mean I thank you because I think it's great that you've always made the effort and always long before the the thing always been on a quest to be like look how can i be the best person i can be and how can i communicate to everyone in a way that affirms them and 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 really uses words to express love cuz i think that's what words should do i words should be used to you know build bridges, make bridges, and you've done that with words. So this oh, is just another form format that you're using to continue the work that you've been doing for many, many years. So, And
0: you're just going to have to keep us updated. If you have anything new within your research about how we can be better in dialogue on this important issue, please let me know.
1: I will, and I will make a plug. I do have an, another article that is available called You Can't Do That, where it's me and a colleague and we do a comparison of entrepreneurs, a black woman and a white organization. Um, so people might find that interesting in terms of looking at the comparison we did of these two entrepreneurs um, in very different places. And we talked about their similarities. So well, send it to me or send the link and we'll make sure it's in the show notes. Lovely. And thank, thank you so much. You.
0: Lovely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode or text a couple of your friends right now to a WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to tag me at and B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.